right. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our newest uh, Women at the Well virtual book club series. We're here with Springs in the Desert. I'm Allie, and I'm here with Anne and Stacy. And we're so excited. We know that there are a lot of y'all who have had read this book even before we announced the book club series. And there's um, just a really nice following for this book. But we are going to be reading Under the Laurel Tree, Grieving Infertility with Saints Joachim and Anna. And we're just really excited because this is a book that is actually about infertility and it has a lot of good material in it. So we're looking forward to a great discussion, um, both amongst the three of us and then hearing your comments and questions. Stay tuned on the Facebook group. We're gonna be um, hopefully offering a chance to discuss um, via Zoom some of the content of this book. So look for that um, on our Facebook group and hopefully you can be a part of it. Um, so before we get into the discussion, Anne is going to give us um, a little background on Saints Anne and Joachim and a little bit more about the book. Turn it over to you, Anne. Yeah, so I love this book. And I just want to say before we get started, so for every book club that we have done, we always say that it's not necessary to have the book and read the book in order to listen to the podcast and participate in discussion. So truth be told, that Elizabeth Lasser book is so wonderful, but I am not anywhere, like I haven't made much headway in it. But, but the book club and your discussion really inspired me, um, inspired me to read it, but just, I don't know, I just took so much away from it. So even if you don't have this book, if you're not reading this book currently, you know, I think you can still benefit from this discussion, but I really um, encourage everybody listening to get this book under the laurel tree by Nicole Rokas because it is so good. And it just has been speaking to me on so many different, different levels. I find it um, consoling. I find it challenging um, and just so inspiring. And I, I don't know, what, as I've been reading it, I've just been, I don't know how, how you both feel about it, but I almost feel like I'm sitting with a friend and, you know, just kind of sharing um, our feelings. Um, so I think because it comes from a woman who is in the midst of this experience of infertility, it just is so impactful. And this is the first book that we're doing that directly... Uh, pertains to infertility. So I just wanted to put that out. I really encourage people to get this book because it's great. And as you said, Allie, this is inspired by um, the story of Saints Anna and Joachim, which we know from tradition, whether you're Catholic or Orthodox, Nicole Rokas is an Orthodox Christian woman, but this is part of our tradition. We, we um, believe that Anna and Joachim are the parents of Mary, and their story is one that begins with infertility and with the real kind of desperation and grief that comes along with that. And the text that Nicole bases this book on is called the Proto-Evangelium of James. And so I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds on it, um, and have kind of a theological or biblical exegetical discussion. How do you like that, Stacy? Is that a good word? <laughs> That's great. That's some good theology lingo, right? Uh, we don't, so we don't want to we don't want to get down into those weeds. But just 
for people who aren't familiar to know that the Proto-Evangelium of James is not a part of the canon of scripture. So if you go and grab your Bible and open it up, you're not going to find it. And the reason is because the church decided that this particular book did not rise to the level of inspiration that, for example, the Gospels do. Um, so it wasn't included in the official canon of scripture, and probably in part because I think there are some embellishments um, within the text. And so for a couple of different reasons, it was decided that it didn't fit into the Bible. However, um, it really fits into tradition, the, the tradition of the church. And it was most likely written probably at the end of the first century, maybe the beginning to the middle second century. So it's a really old text and it, it probably its foundation is some oral tradition. Um, and it really reflects in a lot of ways um, the belief of early Christians and the belief uh, of the early church. And it has a lot of really beautiful stories and additions. We, so we sort of get some additional information um, about Mary, of course, her parents and, and her birth, her presentation in the temple. You know, we celebrate that as a feast day. That, that comes from this Proto-Evangelium of James. And so I would encourage everybody, if you're listening to this, to also go, you can, you can get the Proto-Evangelium online. Ali, I think you'll probably link it in the show notes. Um, and so I encourage you to read it. There are some really cool little stories in there. I really like the story of the presentation of Mary in the temple. Um, and I wish we could just do an episode on that one because I just think there's a lot in there for us to, for us to contemplate. So, um, so, that, so reading that uh, account, which is very short, um, I think is a nice compliment to under the laurel tree and it, and it puts it into kind of a good context. Um, I just want to add on the Proto-Evangelium, um, they, she does list some, uh, on page 84, she talks about problems with the Proto-Evangelium, Proto but she does say that, like, there's content from that, which ins inspires, inspires content for Marian feasts that we celebrate, um, the conception on December 9th the nativity on September 8th, the entrance of the Theotokos on November 21st. So like these, these are just because it's not in the canon um, doesn't mean it's like, it ought to be thrown out. If that makes sense. I think sometimes we have this concept of like, well, if it's not in, in the list of inspired books in the canon, then like, why would we read that? Um, but it can, it can show us as Anne was saying, like, an understanding of what the early church believed. Um, and that's why I think it's important to consider these texts and, and just like bring, bring to the text, the knowledge of, okay, this isn't inspired on the canon, but, um, but there's good, good things that I can take away from it, even though it's not in the list. Yeah, that's right. And you know, there are some things, um, some texts that are out there like, the Gospel of Thomas and other um, texts that we call Gnostic, which when you read them, I mean, really, you don't, you don't find those um, 
those associations that we find with scripture, even, you know, even with some of the embellishments in the Proto-Evangelium, um, you know, there's a lot of correspondence with, with the gospel and with revelation. And some of those other texts that the church did throw out, you know, it's because there were really, really serious problems. So this probably represents a lot of the tradition and whether you're Catholic or Orthodox tradition is really important because it's those common beliefs and practices of the earliest Christians and, and they really inform and, and bring our faith to life. To kind of jump off of that, um, as far as her choice specifically to highlight the story of Anne and Joachim, um, one of the things that she touches on quite a bit is just how much this story is unique and different from many of the other um, Old Testament. You know, we obviously encounter barrenness quite a bit in the Old Testament, but this is unique in that it's a couple experiencing infertility. Um, and so how much the, um, the author, Nicole Rockus, um finds comfort in that. So I was just curious to kind of jump off into more of our discussion um, is that something that struck you or is that something you were already aware of before you read the book? I know, Anne, you um, have, have a devotion, obviously, to Anna, your name being Anne. Um, so is that something that, you know, struck you anew in reading this book or is it, you know, something you were aware of kind of knowing their story beforehand? So for me, I mean, yes, uh, you know, Anne is my patron, right? So I knew the story just from hearing it as a kid. And then I, I've read the Proto-Evangelium a number of times. Um, but it really, for me, it wasn't until I, I read that in the book that it really struck me that this, this really is the story of Anna and Joachim is a story of a couple wrestling with infertility together. And it seems like she gives... Nicole gives some of the other uh, examples like Sarah um, and uh, um, Hannah. Um, and in those cases, we do hear about the husbands, but in, in, some, in some cases, they're a little bit dismissive, um, you know, kind of like, okay, won't, won't you get over <laughs> this already? Um, or in the case of Sarah and Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham goes with the maidservant and, you know, they decide that that's the way to um, end up having a child, but that doesn't work out. You know, that creates all sorts of jealousy and is not at all what God intended. But with the story of Anna and Joachim, it really is different. They are um, experiencing this suffering together, even when they separate, you know, um, Joachim is really feeling that grief and that inadequacy as a man, I think. And we get a much more, um, I guess, three-dimensional view of this couple in their infertility than we do in some of the other stories in scripture. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I hadn't considered that, that, that it is so unique in that way, but, but reading, I think Nicole just is such a beautiful job of um, <clears throat> weaving the, the reasons behind, um, choosing them in particular throughout the, the entire book. But I know today we want to get, um, kind of more deeply into just discussing grief as a topic. And I think in this book, one of the reasons I love it and why I also recommend that anyone 
um, purchase it who's struggling with infertility, um, even if you haven't read it, you know, in advance of these book club, this book club series is because it's so affirming, especially in just what it means to be struggling with this grief. I mean, many times throughout the story of Joachim and Anna and in the writing of Nicole, I felt affirmed by the way that she, um, she just constantly goes back to, this is a grief, you know, this is really something, even though there's not um, a tangible loss. And, and I think it's also important to point out that she specifically mentions that um, this isn't meant to serve as particularly for a miscarriage grief, that it's unique to infertility. Um, and, and that's, a you know, n- another grief that's often layered with infertility. But here we're talking specifically about infertility. Um, but she just affirms that again and again, that there is something lost here, even though it's not tangible in the way that many other types of grief are. So um, I really appreciated that. And also that she talks specifically about the loss of dreams, the loss of meaning. Um, And we see this in the life of Anne and Joachim. It's like, you see Anne struggling under the laurel tree, you know, crying out to God. Um, And there's, there's a specific line that she mentions in what trinkets shall I find solace in life? And that just struck such a chord with me. It's like, well, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like in what trinkets, you know, where will I find meaning? What will I, you know, do and pursue in my life, um, in my marriage? So I just, I really appreciated how much um, Nicole just acknowledged that particular pain. I find it interesting um, how, and she she lays this out in the introduction, specifically on page 24. Um, she associates how she's going to lay out this structure of the stages of grief that Anna and Joachim go through with that those traditional five um, stages from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And if you're not familiar with that, you know, you can look it up. But I think at this point, a lot of people are really um, familiar with, uh, with Ross's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so um, Nicole takes those and kind of adapts them to the story. And she changes, um, they, they sort of follow the same line, but she changes them, um, those stages to shame, separation, anger, bargaining, and thanksgiving. And I think it's really interesting how she does that throughout. And I I really like that structure. And I've I've tried in the past, like in talks that I've given, to to discuss the grief of infertility, kind of using that traditional um, method with those stages. And I could never quite get it to fit, but... I love the way that Nicole took those stages and adapted them to this story. And that really resonated with me. I think that it, this, this was a really good structure. I think in, um, in chapter four um, is where we sort of, launch it's 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 a chapter on shame mm-hmm. um but it's it's be, where we begin to sort of see um that experience of infertility from a woman's perspective and then also a man's perspective and she talks about um infertility shame in women and then infertility shame in men 
And I think what's, what's so, what struck me about this chapter was um, the experience of infertility, the experience of grief and shame um, from a different perspective other, other than mine, right? To, to understand maybe more deeply, like, how my husband, like through the lens of St. Joachim, how my husband might experience his infertility grief. Um, because we learn in, in the Proto-Evangelium that um, St. Joachim left for a time in and went to the desert. And um, Anne, uh, St. Anna gr- grieved that as if he were dead. Um, and so... Um, but then they come back together. But I think what's, what's remarkable is like that um, the way that they express that pain and shame um, through the experience of infertility being different. And I think that was really necessary for me to learn and understand um, in my experience that infertility for me as a woman and how I, I grieve through it it's going to look different than the infertility and shame that my husband experiences um, just by virtue of how we're created and, and how we process it. Yeah, I, I completely agree that that chapter was so eye-opening for me. I mean, you know, I, I knew that, but just hearing it in the way that she discussed it. So for example, she hits right, I think the nail on the head when she says, you know, in casual conversations on page 105, I often hear women say that their husbands just don't understand or aren't as upset as they should be about their lack of kids. And I mean, that's so relatable. I mean, I've, I've thought those things myself. I know we've discussed that on um, different podcast episodes about how that can be something that maybe at an initial glance, it's like, well, he's not crying as much, or he's not talking about it as much. Um, but later Nicole says, or, or writes that, um, I can't remember where it is, but she says basically that um, men don't have that ability to express, I mean, there's a lot at play here, but socially, you know, they don't necessarily, um, they're not taught to express their emotions in that same way. So we shouldn't expect them to. But then what I also got out of what she wrote is that part of their grief is the grief that we feel. And I know, Anne, you've talked about that before and, and just how much it hurts um, for them to see us, their wives, in pain, and that, and that that's no less of a grief than the grief um, that maybe we feel, you know, in our body, because it's in our body. Um, so that was just, to read that was just eye-opening, especially, like you said, Stacey, in the context of Joachim and his shame. Um, it really, I, I think, I actually read it to my husband, and I was, and he was like, yeah, <laughs> Yeah. And, and it was just, it was really, um, I encourage, you know, if this is, can be a come a talking point, even if your husband's not reading along with you, maybe like discussing certain sections together, um, especially when she's writing about from the man's perspective, I think it can lead to some really good conversations and hopefully like helping each other to see, you know, where some of those misunderstandings and, and those miscommunications can happen when we expect, you know, a certain reaction from the other person. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And Stacy, you mentioned that Joachim goes off into the desert, but what precedes that in the Proto-Evangelium is that, you know, he's going to the temple to, you know, to make the sacrifice as you normally would. And he's basically kicked out and told, listen, you know, you're kind of not keeping up your end of the covenant, right? You're childless. So, 
you know, you have no business being here. And just to pick up on what both you and Allie were, were saying about our husbands, I mean, this is another way I think that shows us the differences in grief. And like you said, Allie, you know, this is something that we as women feel in our bodies, right? Because we're the ones, you know, conception happens in our bodies and we're the ones who would carry a child. But for the man, you know, we, I think at least I tend to maybe not dismiss, but I forget about the fact that, you know, my husband might have these feelings of inadequacy, you know, or like he's letting me down um, because of this infertility, whether there's a problem with him or with me, you know, medically, whatever it might be. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that we experience together, but individually we can each kind of beat ourselves up and say, you know, what, what's wrong with me or, you know, how is this my fault? And I think men feel that in a, in a different, but really acute way, because they are the problem solvers and the initiators and, you know, leave it to me and I'll fix it and I'll find the answer. And when, I mean, when they're not able to do that, um, you know, for Joe Kim, he goes off. Um, but maybe our husbands don't, you know, physically leave, but they might shut down. They, not, not that they, they won't talk to us, but maybe they won't talk to us about this. And, it's, and it might be sort of like a defense um, for them because, because they have no solution. I found a quote that really hit me on this top, on this exact note. It's on page 110. Um, it says, in some sense, it's easier to believe men are emotionally distant or clueless than the alternative, that they feel in the very center of their being that they are a failure, that they are more concerned for their wives' well-being than their own, that they would willingly die or disappear if it meant alleviating our distress. When I read that, I was like, whoa, like it hit me the depth, you know, as much as I feel this deep emotion, it's like, he feels it too, it's just different. And it hit me when the, in that, in that sentence it's like whoa that's what he feels like can you imagine I can't imagine carrying that you know it's anyway so it was really helpful kind of get outside of my own um head and, and put myself in his shoes yeah I think that reminds me so much of the oneness of that we that we are as spouses to each other just that like okay my grief it's not just mine it's my husband's too even if he's not you know like expressing it like I am that doesn't mean it's any less his grief also um because like we're one so like what through this like our grief is 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 ours together it's not mine or his and that and that's so true and and going back to the uniqueness of the story of um saints Anna Joe Kim is that like this, the seeing the couple going through it together um, versus just the woman. Yeah. And, and on, and later in this chapter, um, Nicole e even says, you know, for the sake of our marriages and our hearts, it's helpful to think in this way. I really appreciated that she wrote that because, you know, I think there's a process we all go through and there's good days and bad days, but I think the more I can challenge myself to, like you said, remember the oneness and um, the need to, to see things from the other's perspective. It's like, 
that's much better than assuming <laughs> that he just doesn't care or, you know, if we can challenge ourselves to do that, I think it is um, good for that oneness and for that unity in our marriage. Yeah, Ali, in our discussion before we had been sort of emailing our thoughts before and you, you had picked up on that quote on page 28. Um, that this book is not just for women, mainly because women aren't the only side of the gene pool grieving infertility. Men are uniquely sensitive to the shame of a childless marriage. Yet in both church and society, we feminize infertility and its grief in subtle ways. Not only does this harm women, men, and their marriages, it perpetuates a depiction of men as unwilling or emotionally inept father figures. And I think there's there's a lot packed into that quote and a lot that we can maybe take to our spouses, you know, kind of in discussion and in reflection um, with them and converse and like starting conversation, which I know is difficult um, sometimes. And I know that there are women out there who are listening or who are in our Facebook group. Um, you know, who express specifically that they do have a hard time communicating with, with their spouses about the infertility. So, I mean, just to also acknowledge that, that, you know, for some women, um, I think they feel the isolation of infertility even more acutely because there is that difficulty in, in kind of communication. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I I remember I was talking with my um, therapist just like a couple weeks ago, and um, he was. I was like, I haven't I didn't talk to him in, in like over a year, and I was just filling him in on like our infertility journey, and um, he asked me like about. Um, just like how my relationship with Phil, my husband, like how it's gone through the experience and um, sort of like uh, asking if Phil's like opening up kind of thing. And I was kind of, and, and I was like, well, <laughs> like, yes and no. Like he, he like, he's kind of like, you know, going through it and so pace and it looks to, like totally different than my like feelings and grief emotions and like a little bit part of me is like I understand but also part of me is like man I, I kind of wish you would open up more or talk to me more but um what my counselor made very clear was like you know maybe that's just not true to him and like who he is as a person and um I'm, I'm not trying to say that like I share in any ways in that pain of like maybe my spouse is totally on a different page than me because in, in so many ways like we're so unified in our grief. Um, it's like I'm not trying to like I, I feel for those people who maybe have a hard time relating to their spouse on any level because um, that's not that's not something that I experience. I, I know we are able to relate to each other. 
but just the importance of being reminded by somebody else outside an outside third party like you know maybe your spouse just doesn't experience this the way that you do I was like that's really important for me to hear because uh sometimes you just are like why (laughs) you know why can't you feel this way why like we can't tell people how to feel It's not in my right to be able to, to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an easy thing to fall into, though. I mean, it's, you know, because it's just such a, and again, the book does such a good job of acknowledging this. Like, it's such a an intense um, feeling and, and grief. And it can't, you know, we all know, like, on certain days or certain seasons, like, it can just be so, um, so deep. And so I think I, maybe that's where it comes from, like that desire to like share that with someone, but it, you know, I guess <laughs> marriage helps us grow and um, pushes us, right, to, to see that there's not just one way of looking at it. Another thing I wanted to point out about the book is that um, she uh, includes these little, um, she did, I think, a series of questions or interviews with, um, I believe, uh, just people in the Orthodox Church, as far as I know. And so she includes quotes from um, people who have experienced infertility. Um, and so some are obviously from men. And I found that yeah, also. I think she had done a survey before okay. she was writing the book. She had done a survey. Okay. Um, so like, for example, um, on page 52, um, a man named Aaron says men experience infertility silently, but would like to talk about it with other men. There is a stigma to almost any male mental health issue. We are generally okay for women to have issues, but don't like to talk about our own. So even like hearing this, um, I think can be helpful for generating that empathy because I mean, it's definitely been the case in my marriage where I feel like I have many more opportunities to talk about this yeah. um, <clears throat> with other women. I mean, right now is one of them, but you know, it's, it's not as easy, I think, for men to find that, um, even if it's something that they do desire. So um, Yeah, I wrote that one down too, Allie, um, because I thought that that was an important quote. And what I wrote down was um, that men want to talk, but not the way that we do as women. So like, that's the other thing is that we should not expect our husband to, you know, want to go to his friends and, you know, sit down with like wine and just sort of pour his heart out. I mean, they... That to me, I guess that's been the most difficult thing or the most challenging thing in my marriage to learn is how my husband grieves, how he expresses himself, and to be okay with that um, and not try to make him be as you know emotional as I am or um you know, whatever it might be. I, I I mean, I have to allow him, much like your therapist said, Stacey, I have to allow him to just kind of be who he is and to express, you know, the way that he does. Um, and so even as painful as it is, going back to the proto-evangelium, even as painful as it is when Anna and Joachim separate, I mean, I see some something positive in that too, because it's like, okay, they they sort of see you know, that they got to kind of work on themselves, you know, um, and, and they're working through each of them sort of working through, 
you know, what they're feeling and experiencing emotionally and spiritually, especially. Um, so as much as we do need communication, I think that we as individuals, as, as wives and husbands, as women and men, you know, we also have to work on ourselves and process through grief and these emotions ourselves um, as well. And especially if there is some difficulty in communication, that's even all the more reason to sort of get ourselves together. Um, not that, you know, we have to, we just have to fix ourselves so that we don't feel grief anymore, but to like really, you know, process it through and get our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with God and, you know, better understanding of our spouse before we can kind of as a couple, you know, really move forward. Um, another another thing I just wanted to point out about the book, too, is at the end of every chapter, there's this um, discussion and reflection questions. Um, and we might bring some of those up during these episodes. But I think they're also a great thing, again, to discuss with friends or also hopefully with your spouse. Um, like, for example, in this chapter four that we've been discussing, um, one of the questions is, in what ways do you think your husband's or wife's experience of infertility grief is different from your own? what would help you feel understood by your spouse? I mean, that could be like a great way to just, I mean, I know everyone's a little different and some people might not want to <laughs> sit down and discuss, discuss questions like this, but I mean, I really think that it could be a great, um, great thing to visit together if you have the opportunity um, and if your spouse is open to it. Well, and you also don't have to sit down and say, Hey honey, on page 89, this woman has some great questions for discussion. I mean, we can sort of, you know, read them and, and sit with them and kind of take them in um, and then, you know, use that as a way to speak to our husbands, you know, in ways that they understand, in ways that resonate with them that are kind of more organic rather than making it seem like, okay, now we're sitting down to a discussion. You know, I think, I think they're good just for sort of getting the wheels turning in our own heads, um, you know, to then be able to kind of present it in our own words to, to our husband. Maybe we want to go back to that whole idea of just sort of discussing grief, like what grief is and the fact that infertility is, I don't know if you want to call it a legitimate kind of grief. I mean, for me, um, <clears throat> it took a long time. And honestly, it, it probably was not until I really became involved with Springs in the Desert. And especially when I started hearing the stories of other women that it sort of hit me that infertility is something that I am grieving. Um, and especially <laughs> infertility is something that I was not grieving. And I think that that was very much to my detriment that, you know, I wasn't thinking that infertility is sort of a legitimate grief because w what did I lose? I mean, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't lost anything. No one died. I didn't, I never conceived and then lost a child. So, um, it, so I never thought that I had a right to grieve. And I think Nicole does a really good job of, of 
fleshing out grief and talking about um, how infertility brings along with it, you know, this real sadness, um, this real kind of period of mourning that we need to acknowledge and enter into and kind of really explore and process for ourselves. And on page 25, we were talking about this quote earlier. Um, she says, infertility is an apophatic grief. By rational standards, we have literally nothing to grieve, but over time, all the gaps and negative spaces of childlessness reveal a shape, a figure, a whisper of a life we long to hold in our arms. And that really resonated with me because it sort of goes to the mystery that surrounds infertility. There isn't a tangible that I can show you, you know, this is, this is why I am sad. This is why I mourn. Um, it's more mysterious than that. And yet it's real. It's, it's in some way really tangible to me. And um, so that has been really important for me. And I mean, I would just say to everyone who's listening to us, who is dealing with this cross of infertility, that this is absolutely something that you have a right to grieve that, um, that you should acknowledge as, as a real loss in, in your life and in your marriage. Now we can flesh out and that's part of the, the mission of Springs in the Desert is okay, then, you know, how do we take that grief and, you know, turn toward fruitfulness and hope and, and, you know, the life that God wants to give us. But I think we shouldn't be too quick to say, oh, okay, grief and loss. Now let's, you know, let's move on and let's, you know, let's find the answer. Or let's find the end of it. Um, I think it's important for us, like Anna does in the Proto-Evangelium, to kind of sit with it and, and um, you know, work through it. I heard something yesterday that said, you don't move on, you move forward. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to grief, and I think that's just as much true with infertility, like I have a close friend who um, was on the road with me for like four years or so, and she recently had a miraculous pregnancy and you know, I can see that it's still, and she said to this, like, this has changed who I am. Like this experience of infertility has changed the way I see things and, you know, my marriage and how I, how I look at the world. And, um, and I thought that was very profound that, you know, it, it doesn't just like end when we get pregnant or when we, you know, go through menopause or whatever it is, like it's a, um, it's a part of um, our experience, but that doesn't mean that we can't move forward with our lives. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think this book does a good job of like acknowledging the, um, the grief, but also like walking forward through, um, you know, these phases to help us understand like how to move forward with our spouse, how to have, um, you know, how to reach out to like Joachim does with Abraham, um, looking to these people that can inspire us like, um, Elizabeth Lasser and St. Anne, um, who can help us um, walk forward and find, um, you know, like Anne said, the fruitfulness that God's calling us to. Um, so. I want to also add just the importance of grieving. Um, like there, there has to, infertility, like the experience of infertility, you, you won't find healing without going through 
the grief. Um, so it's not like you can just like, like remove it from your experience. It's going to be there, um, whether you want it to be there or not. Um, but I was recently speaking with a woman in her experience, sort of, she knew that they were going to struggle going into marriage. Um, they married a little bit older, not, not that old, but like in her thirties, which I got married when I was 23. So like (laughs) to her, that was older. Um, but she and her husband, um, went right away to adoption, which is like been a beautiful blessing for them. Um, but like, she's realizing that now, like she still is, experiencing grief and and hasn't processed at all um now that she's had adopted a number of children and um she never realized like that that grief would be a part of her experience because they were like you know everyone says oh just adopt you know and sometimes you can buy into that concept of just adopt and every like all the pain will go away and it'll be fine once you have a baby in your arms it's not that simple um, there still has to be a processing of the grief of infertility um, and, and adoption is a whole separate category of discernment. Um, and I know I've said this before to <laughs> many people, but um, just that, that concept of like the, the grief is going to be there, whether you ignore it or whether you, you know, put in the work to process it. And so um I can say from my experience and from this woman that shared her story with me, like the better path is to process it and learn um, how to learn what, what grief, uh, what, what plan the Lord has to your grief and, and to allow it to turn you in the direction of fruitfulness and bearing fruit in your life. Um, but running away from it isn't going to bring healing. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Stacy. And that, as you were speaking, that made me think of, and I don't know, maybe this is a good, a good place to um, kind of bring our discussion to an end and look ahead to um, some of the other episodes that, that we're going to do of the discussion. But on page um, 46, Nicole talks um, about this word sterility, um, which I hate that word. (laughs) Like, it's just such a, like, just such a cold. And um, I don't know, to me, it's just a term that lacks hope. Um, So she, she talks about that. And she says, I avoid the term sterility, except in direct quotation. Um, She doesn't regard, she says, I don't regard any human being as truly incapable of bearing or producing life, even people who have been medically diagnosed as such. The witness of Christ, and this is the really important part, I think, for us, and is that kind of um, light at the end of of the grief, um, or even mixed in with the grief. The witness of Christ demonstrates that biological procreation is merely a shadow or icon of the life he has given us. Our task, whether barren or sterile or fertile, is to manifest that life to the world through whatever means, opportunities, bodies, and talents he has given us. And that, I think, is 
the quote that gives me such hope in the midst of my own grief as I continue to process through that, that regardless of the fact that at this point in my life at 53 years old and my husband at 55, um, and you know, my cycles have stopped now. So, you know, barring a true divine intervention, you know, conception is not going to happen for us. And yet my marriage is not, or does not have to be sterile. It is life-giving and, um, and every marriage is, and whether or not a particular act a marital act, a particular moment where we come together um, in that intimate way, whether or not that bears physical fruit, it always bears fruit, or it should always bear fruit in our marriages, drawing us closer together. But then also through that, like that bond should animate us and animate our lives in the world and how we um, communicate with others, how we care for others, whether it's in our family or in the community or in our parish. So none of us is sterile. None of us is empty and lifeless. We all are reflecting the life, you know, the source of all life. We are reflecting Christ and we're reflecting God's love in the world and we're bearers of that love. And even in the midst of our grief, we are able to give life. Um, and so I guess you're right. The, the idea is maybe not to get over or move past, but to move forward, even if we still carry some remnant of that grief, to realize that it's a means for fruitfulness. It's a means for giving life. I've said this before, and this may sound like really awful and cold, but it's the truth. Had we gotten pregnant, this none of this would have meant anything to me. I mean, I might have looked at someone who can't have children and think, oh, isn't that too bad? And I might have kind of looked at, on them with pity and thought, oh, that's really sad, right? But I, But I wouldn't have really cared that much. I think I wouldn't have been so invested. And so for me, it's odd to say, but the gift of infertility has really been, I think, in some ways to have a better understanding of some of the things that other people are carrying, the burdens that they carry, and see how life-giving they are to me through those burdens. Um, and when I can reach out to another person and care for them, that's, that's a real way um, that, that I can be mothering and that I can love and that I can step outside of myself. I'm, you know, I'm really good at being self-centered. Um, but in my infertility has just opened up so many opportunities for me to learn how to step outside of myself. So I don't know if that makes sense. You guys are, you guys are really good. You are good and holy women. So no, I totally probably relate. doesn't. <laughs> I totally relate. Anne. Definitely. I, that feeling, that sense of like, if I hadn't, like, if I hadn't been through this, I would have had no empathy for 
other people who experience this because how would it have related to me and my experience and my pain? And so um, I suppose it, it helps also give me more patience with um, other people that don't show empathy towards me and to realize that like, okay, I'm not too far off from them because I wouldn't have been any better. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I, I'm such an idealist that I would have been like, oh, I have my perfect little family and everything's beautiful and wonderful. And I think I just would have been so caught up in that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, everyone, God's always reaching out to everyone and nobody's life is perfect. I think that's another thing that infertility has taught me is like, even if it looks perfect on Facebook, probably it's not. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's always more that people are, are struggling with because we're not in heaven yet. Like it's, you know, we're here and we're challenged and lots of things happen. But I think that, um, I love that quote. I think it's so awesome. I think it really speaks to that idea that like, even someone who does is blessed with biological children you know, if they don't spiritually care for those children, like they're not really fulfilling their duty as um, bearers of, you know, Christ's life in the world. And in the same way, people who don't have biological children can really do that, um, even without, you know, that particular um, blessing. So I just think that it's just, it really broadens our perspective to, um, to hear that and have that affirmed that, you know, no one is truly sterile. It also reminds me that, you know, we may not realize it, but honestly, those of us who don't have children who have not been able to conceive or to bring a child to term, we are witnesses for the marriages of those people who do have children, who do have, you know, big families or small or medium-sized families because it can be really easy to get so wrapped up in your own family and what they're doing that you don't look outside of it and you're not participating in the community or you're not, um, you know, attending to, to friends in the way that you ought to. Of course, it's different when you have those, um, you know, those family obligations, but you know, I think there, there is also a danger that you become so isolated and insular within your family that you sort of forget about, um, you know, your obligation to bring the love that's generated in your family out into the world and make it fruitful in the world. So I think we actually, um, you know, sometimes we sort of think that, well, we're childless, there's, there's a kind of uselessness to that. What do we have to offer? But I think that, um, you know, what we have to offer is that witness to the importance of bringing the love um, and, and the life that's within the family structure, within the couple relationship out into the world. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of... Um, what Nicole is one of the things that she gets at in this book as well. So, you know, if you're out there and you're listening and you know, you're in the midst of that grief, please know that you and your marriage are an important and a vital and necessary witness um, of Christ's love and his presence in the world. Yeah. If, if you struggle with any sort of thoughts, um, 
or just like even if they're passing but things like things that come to mind that make you feel as though like your marriage doesn't matter like those are from satan so like those need to be like dispelled um and renounced because like there's goodness and there is beauty in your marriage regardless of if you bore biological children um regardless of if you have yet figured out what the fruits of your marriage are they're there i'm sure and they're very unique um don't be afraid to sort of like explore and and ask god to open your eyes to see the ways that your marriage is bearing fruit um i talk a lot about my work with high school ministry um but like that's like one avenue of of the way that my marriage is bearing fruit and so i just want to like speak truth to the fact that your marriage is bearing fruit regardless of what you might think or the lies that are being you know planted in your head um but then also spend time trying to like understand and discern more deeply what ways your marriage is bearing fruit specifically because there i'm certain there are ways and the lord um you know, wants to make those, uh, reveal them to you so you can sort of lean into what he's calling you to do with your marriage. And it is going to be super unique. Don't expect it to look like anything specific. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, all right. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Women at the Well Virtual Book Club. We've loved sharing uh, this discussion and we want to hear from you. So please comment on our Facebook group. You'll see some questions posted there. Chime in, tell us what favorite quotes you have, what you really love about the book. Um, and join us again for our second episode, which will air on November 11th. Um, and in the meantime, please also um, subscribe and like our podcast and rate it. Um, if you look on Apple, I think it's Apple Podcasts, you can rate the podcast. That will help us reach more people. Um, and if you're not already following us on Facebook and Instagram, definitely do so because um, we have other awesome things happening as well. And you can get some inspiration and encouragement through our social media channels. So with that, um, it's been great being with you and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.